Let me just remind you what the last commandment is. It's this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How miserable is that? Just before Christmas, when everyone's uh, getting excited about uh, the presents and the pastor goes and uh, preaches the sermon on thou shalt not covet. In some ways, it tends to confirm our worst suspicions, doesn't it? Perhaps we uh, just need to brace ourselves for another Christmas' sinful sermon and then go off and enjoy it anyway. Reminds me actually of H.L. Mencken's um, scurrilous definition of Puritanism. He said, Puritanism was the haunting fear that somewhere, somehow, somebody may be happy. Perhaps that's what Christianity is all about. Perhaps Christians are like... um, Uh, Field Marshal Montgomery's mother, who herself was a vicar's wife, he once said she spent her life when he was a child saying of him, go and find out what Bernard is doing and tell him to stop it. I think there is certainly a danger that we Christians can be killjoys from, uh, from time to time. Oliver Cromwell did, after all, famously ban Christmas, saying it was superstitious, licentious, and sinful. Holly, especially, was the subject of his wrath. Soldiers, you know, were were under instruction on Christmas Day to to walk the streets and to see if they could sniff out any roasting geese. geese. If, uh, If they smelt any, they could air forcibly enter the house and remove it from the ovens. But, um, The Bible, actually, is not like that at all. The Bible actually encourages us to uh, delight in God's gifts. And uh, thank God that uh, Cromwellian suspicion of Christmas actually was soon replaced by a recognition amongst the Puritans that uh, the laughter and celebrations and gifts of Christmas are good gifts from God. But delight in those things so easily overflows into envy and strife and disappointment, doesn't it? We see it in uh, juvenile quarrels over new toys. We, We feel it sometimes, especially when all the presents have been opened. And actually, when we look around at them, they're a lot less attractive than the wrapped boxes that were under the tree. We just feel a little bit flat. For the children especially, we try to compensate for that by spending more and more and more on presents. You know, today parents spend an average of £200 per child on their own children alone. And uh, one survey I I read uh, estimated that we spend approximately £700 per head on Christmas presents. That's uh, pushed up by the fact that uh, a few people spend thousands of pounds on Christmas presents. And still, somehow, it seems, though we buy more and more, the pleasure feels thin. Now, the Bible warns us, you see, against covetousness, not, not because God wants to curb our joy, 
but because God actually wants to preserve our joy. In fact, uh, covetousness, or what elsewhere in the Bible is more prosaically called greed, is at the root of a very large proportion of what goes wrong in this world. It's not an accident that um, this tenth and uh, last commandment actually seems to summarize the whole of the, uh, the rest of the commandments, or at least the, uh, the six that lead up to it. Covetousness, uh, first of all, gets uh, to the root of the problem by addressing our hearts. Covetousness is an unseen secret in our hearts. The Bible makes it very plain. The root of our problem is not actually in our behaviour. The root is in our hearts. As we've gone through the rest of the commandments, we've tried to, to show, haven't we, how again and again and again, the Bible makes it plain that it's not only um, murder that is uh, dangerous to us, anger in our heart is dangerous to us. It's not only out-and-out out flagrant adultery which is dangerous to us. To us, No, actually, uh, lust in our heart is dangerous. Every one of these um, uh, uh, prohibitions points, in fact, to a problem at the very root of our being. The Ten Commandment brings that into the open. Do not covet, it says. Summarizes those uh, Ten Commandments as well because Jesus actually makes it plain that it is the greatest commandment. He actually had a habit of recasting the uh, Tenth Commandment in a positive form, as he often does. He does it, um, for instance, when he's talking to a rich ma young man about his behavior in uh, Matthew chapter 19. He says to that man, um, listing the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself is Jesus' version of the Tenth Commandment. To covet anything which belongs to another person is to say, I am more important than them. I deserve to get that, not them. I care more for myself than I care about them. Jesus says um, that learning not to covet is learning about loving other people on the same, uh, uh, to the same extent that we love ourselves. And then he makes in plain in Matthew 22 that um, this commandment is the greatest one. To be strictly accurate, he, he uh, effectively he says that it's the joint greatest, or perhaps better still, he says it's, um, it's one side of the greatest commandment. What happens in Matthew 22 is he's asked to tell someone what the greatest uh, commandment is. And he says the greatest is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is Jesus' version of the first commandment, number one, that we looked at weeks and weeks ago. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the greatest commandment, he says. But then he says something very interesting. He says the second one, which is like it, 
there is a second one, a flip side of that, which in, in many senses is the, is the mirror image, is the pair. It's necessary for us to have it in our minds, in our, in our hearts, uh, to, to, to walk with Jesus in the same way as it's necessary to have two shoes on our feet to walk along the road. The pair to loving God with all our hearts is to love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments, he says. The first and the last commandments, then, in Jesus' mind, actually summarise everything in the whole Bible that God requires of us. Love God with all our hearts, have no other gods before me. Love our neighbour as ourself. Don't covet anything. Don't try and claim that my claim on life is greater than theirs. Love them as myself. It's also uh, a summarising commandment because uh, the Bible makes it very plain it is a root of all kinds of evil. Perhaps it underlies all offences we ever commit against other people. I want the status of other people, so I dishonour my parents and every other authority structure in society. I want my way, so I hate and murder others. I want someone else's wife, so I lust and commit adultery. I want other people's possessions, so I steal. I want to enhance my reputation, so I falsely besmirch the reputation of others. I, I uh, uh, give false testimony. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I covet. James chapter 4 says it very clearly. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Those couple of verses could summarise everything from my children fighting in their bedroom to the Nazi Holocaust. God, greed drives us in powerful and destructive ways. It will not do, says the Bible, simply to try to control our outward behaviour. Because if this, this cancer is in our hearts and is not cut out, then somehow it will express itself. Covering it up with nice clothes will not make it go away. One way or another, it will take us over. One way or another, it will shape our lives. One way or another, you see, the way that we think, the way that our heart functions, what goes on at the very root of our being determines who we are. So we must neutralise then this most fundamental of failures in the human heart. Well, perhaps the first uh, weapon to uh, try to uh, neutralise 
that covetousness that we all suffer from is to understand its roots. The Bible says a lot about the roots of, the, of such things. Let me just pick out three principal roots to this terrible plant. The first, frankly, is ignorance. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, for instance, makes that very plain. Paul describes the general culture in which he lived in this way. He says they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. In other words, he says, ignorance always makes us continually lust for more of everything. We think we will be happy, happier if we just have a little more, but we are wrong. John D. Rockefeller was uh, asked once, um, how much money was enough? He said, just a little bit more. Hollywood uh, peddles a constant diet of stories about how um, unhappy marriages can be resolved by finding a new and blissful relationship. They ignore the brute fact that about two-thirds of people on their second marriage say they were happier in their first. The novelist Jack Higgins was once asked what he knew now that he hadn't known when he was a boy. He said, when you get to the top, there is nothing there. But ignorance of those things drives us. There's a whole series of myths that motivate us. It's... Um, the, the, the myth that just a little bit more will make us happy, sadly, that drives so many children in the, in the, the uh, leading, lead up to Christmas. When I have got my sticky little hands on those presents, then I will be happier. Then life will be present, uh, better. And of course, within a week or two of Christmas, that myth dissolves. Do you know, it's usually only a couple of days before my children are counting the day till the next birthday in our family. And sadly, we simply transfer that ignorant hope then in adulthood to the next job, the next sexual partner, the next house, the next holiday, a continual lust for more. Do you see? Driven by ignorance, driven by the false understanding that if I just have that, then everything will be all right. Wake up! We need to look at what we already have. Everybody, of course, can name things that they uh, uh, would like to have in addition to, to what they already have. But let's not deceive ourselves that those things would sort out our life. Perhaps actually we need to gain a new appreciation of what we already have and really open eyes to the false myths that we feed our hearts with because ignorance 
breeds a continual lust for more. The second and actually more profound root of the covetousness is insecurity, or perhaps it might be it might have been better to put anxiety. Luke chapter twelve um, tells a, a story which perhaps helps to illustrate uh, this pattern, which is found all over the place in in Scripture. Jesus tells a story of a father, farmer who has an abundant crop and he decides that he's going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones so that he will be financially secure for years to come. God calls him a fool. He wasn't secure at, at all. That night he died. That night he would have to meet God face to face and give an account for his life. But then it's very interesting what Jesus goes straight on to say. Yes, this man was ignorant, certainly. But what drove this man to store up all uh, his money, it seems, in Jesus' mind, was a desire for security. It was an anxiety, actually, about the world that he lived, that he thought he could... Um, assuage by storing up all these things. So straight on from that, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Therefore. It's anxiety and insecurity that drives this continual lust for more, especially when it comes to money. We think that money and possessions will keep us secure. No, says Jesus, God keeps us secure. Consider the ravens, he said. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? No, you might shorten it. But since you cannot do this very little thing, he says, why do you worry about the rest? The non-Christian world, he says, runs after these things because they have no security. They're constantly trying to build walls around themselves. It's fear that drives them. The teenager buys desperately, buys trainers with a fashionable logo on it because he or she fears that they will be mocked and rejected by their friends. The middle-aged executive buys a big car because he is anxious about his failing potency. Yes, it does happen. The anxious woman goes off for some retail therapy because she knows that if she buys a few more clothes, She'll feel better for a little while. And how pathetic that an advert that uh, talks about being ashamed of your mobile phone can actually cause people to buy them. Where have we got to as a society? But you see, people are frightened. This is a frightening world. 
This is a world of shifting relationships and we're terrified lest our friends fail to respect us and mock us. This is a world that too soon slips through our fingers and we're terrified of death. And death is a city that has no walls to secure us against it, said the ancient philosopher. Money and possessions, you see, are a drug. They uh, reduce our anxiety for a moment. They give us uh, the illusion of security, but only for a moment. And soon that anxiety comes back and the craving for more and more and more comes back. Jesus says in Luke 12 again, Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, he says. You see? Don't fear. And then he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Once we are liberated from fear, then covetousness will dissolve. And you know, perhaps the uh, deepest root of all the reason why we live lives of anxiety so often is because we live lives of idolatry. Twice the New Testament says, quite specifically in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, and Colossians 3, verse 5, that greed is idolatry. Why? Because, you see, we were trying to have our security, trying to find satisfaction in possessions. They became our God. And any God apart from the true God is an idol and a useless one at that. That is why people live lives of fear, because their little idol that they worship, that they think will solve all their problems, never ever does. Jesus has told us already what the answer is, isn't it? Discover the true God. The God who does protect us. The God who gives us riches which money cannot buy. That reading that Mary read to us in Matthew 6 makes plain. But we turn aside to another God. The God money or mammon. Prophet Jeremiah actually uses a very vivid little picture to describe our idolatry and Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Here is God, who constantly is there to pour fresh, satisfying water into the hearts and souls of human beings. And human beings say, no, I don't want that. Perhaps we say it because we can't control a spring. It is just there and flows. Now, I want something that I can control that will satisfy me. And we dig a pathetic little hole, says Jeremiah, a cistern. 
We line it carefully to hold the water, and of course we never do it properly, and the water seeps away. That is what life is like, he says. We abandon the true source of satisfaction for an idol that never satisfies. Two sins. Those then are the roots, or some of the roots, of covetousness. But I have to say, we need more. Because the, the, the truth is that though sometimes we can increase our understanding of what causes our hearts to go astray in this way, people again and again and again find themselves unable to do anything substantially about it. That's the message of the whole of the Old Testament law. That, sadly, is the Old Testament's conclusion to uh, the value of the Ten Commandments. They can provide a diagnosis. They cannot provide a cure. How can we really find the freedom that we long for? Answers are all over the place in Scripture, but I want to go... Um, with you this time to Romans chapter 7. I go to that for a number of reasons, but not least because it actually specifically mentions covetousness for a reason, I think. Paul's argument in uh, Romans chapter 7, verse uh, 7 and following, goes like this. First of all, he says what we've already said, simply being told what to do doesn't greatly help. Indeed, he says, laws, rules about what we should and shouldn't do can cause more trouble than they solve. The law is certainly good when it tells us to do good things, but um, it actually sometimes causes uh, a deeper problem in our hearts Verse uh, 7, for instance. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But, he says, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. In fact, says uh, Paul, we find at the end of a sermon on uh, the Ten Commandments, to our bewilderment, that we cannot live as we should. Verse 15, for instance, he uh, makes that very plain. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Actually, no accident, I'm sure, that Paul picked on covetousness as the focus of his moral struggle because he knew that he could probably stop himself murdering other people. But who has never looked on anyone or anything with envy? The root of sin has not been severed. 
simply by identifying it. If any one of us has listened then with sensitive hearts to, to this commandment or any of the previous ones over the last few weeks, then surely we will echo Paul's conclusion at the end of chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man am I! Who will rescue me from this body of death? But you see, Paul is not utterly wretched. Verse 25, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ has done something which makes a decisive difference, says Paul. Romans chapter 8 makes it plain that God has actually done two things for us, which finally give us freedom. First of all, God has offered us forgiveness in Christ. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. In other words, God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. A payment has been made. We now no longer need to look with terror upon the Bible's diagnosis of the problems in our hearts. We can face them fair and square and say, I own up. That's me. God, please forgive me through Jesus. But then the burden of Romans chapter 8 is actually about the second radical thing that God has done. An equally radical thing. <coughs> Romans chapter 8 tells us that God has given us his spirit. And God's spirit, says Paul, changes our hearts at the most fundamental level. God's Spirit gives us a desire from Him which is actually stronger than our desire for other things, so that now we find ourselves inexorably drawn to delight in God more than anything else. God's Spirit helps us to see God and to know Him as a loving Heavenly Father. God's Spirit severs that root of fear because we find security in God. And only God's Spirit can do that. Only God's Spirit can set us free. We can uh, analyse what is wrong with our hearts till kingdom come. I can stand here and offer forgiveness in Christ till I'm hoarse. But actually the fundamental cancer in our hearts that has to be cut out, that turns us from loving other things to loving God, 
can only be done personally by God through his spirit. And I am powerless to do anything about it. But when God does that in our hearts, then we are free. Chapter 8, verse 15. God did not receive, if you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Notice fear again. You receive the spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Yes, it is the spirit who brings us into relationship with God who makes our hearts yearn for God with an intimacy that we yearn for the most precious members of our family. He severs the root of all sin. He breaks the power of fear in our lives. Now, Nick Hornby recently um, wrote a book which our... Um, uh, Christ and Culture study group was uh, looking at entitled How to Be Good. It's actually a very sad but very honest tale uh, in which um, despite some amazing transformations in the end nobody really changes. Most especially the, uh, the lead characters, uh, who's, a, who's a woman, the lead character's unsatisfactory family life is, is never really satisfactorily resolved. And uh, the final scene reverts just to the family being vaguely normal after no real answers have been given to how they can find happiness and these are the last words of the book my family I think just that and then I can do this I can live this life I can I can it's a spark I want to cherish a flutter of life in the flat battery but just at the wrong moment, I catch a glimpse of the night sky behind David, my husband. And I can see that there is nothing out there at all. That's how it ends. And that's how every effort to be good, without the real God, without the work of God's Spirit in our hearts, ends. But you see, with God's Spirit, working in our hearts, drawing us to Him, helping us to cry out, Abba, Father, well then real change is possible. So I want to ask you this morning. Is God working in your heart in that way? Because if he is, you see, that is unstoppable. 
you can for a while suppress it. You can for a while walk away from it. You can perhaps corrupt it a little. But God has done something in your heart that if you nurture it, will flourish into glorious liberty. And if he has not, then no amount of smart clothes, no amount of smiling and putting up with things, no amount of efforts to be good will make a hypoth of difference. The only way you see to be free is to ask God to give you his spirit. And then this Christmas, I'll be truly happy. Let's pray. Perhaps that's a prayer that you want to pray right now. For God perhaps to multiply a work that's already begun or to begin for the first time. It's your chance to pray. Amen.